Uh, Father, we're so grateful uh, to be together. We honor you. We hold your name high. We want to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel, his word, and uh, how we desire that you would meet us here uh, in these uh, sessions over the next several hours and into tomorrow. And um, Lord, we pray that you would build us up in your word. You would strengthen us, make us more like Jesus because of these times. And we pray as we do that you will give us the tools and the skills and the knowledge to be able to care for people, especially those that are going through hard things in counseling conversations. So uh, thank you uh, for your word and thank you for your sufficiency. And we ask your blessing now in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I'd love for you to take your Bible with me and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, um, so weekend one, you guys have been there, done that. That's sort of our introductory weekend. We talk about theology, we talk about what we mean by counseling, and then uh, we kind of move into the change process, what we call sanctification. And then finally, we concluded last weekend looking Uh, or uh, learning some of the key skills, we call them key elements, that you and I need if we're going to come alongside and care for people. Things like learning how to listen and gather data and build a relationship and whatnot. And then uh, we looked at the video last time, which hopefully brought some of that together to say, okay, I see how all this comes together in a conversation. Well, this weekend is exciting in that we're going to talk... about common life issues this weekend. So we're going to cover things like anxiety and worry, depression, anger, uh, and whatnot. The, the typical things that you and I are going to see in counseling and probably challenges that, that we have as well in our own lives and our own families. And so th- this weekend is exciting because it takes all the theology and skills we learned back in September and it demonstrates how we put those into practice in actual counseling scenarios. So Uh, But with that in mind, we want to talk about discernment right now, discernment. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writing to the church at Colossae where they had been infiltrated with false teachers and false doctrine writes these words regarding um, the need for care and discernment. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And he goes on to talk more about the ministry of Christ there. But I just want to let that verse set the table for what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, This first session, we're going to talk about the various counseling models that are in in existence today. We're not going to exhaust all of them, but just some of the more popular ones. And we want to compare and contrast them to the counseling model that emerges from Scripture. And and I don't know about you, anytime I I come to a scenario where it's like I have to be a little bit critical or I've got to make evaluations, I just want to make sure that I'm coming to that conversation with a humble heart, uh, that we're not coming to be, um, you know, pridefully critical of other people or other systems. And, And so I just want you to know that's my heart, and I think that honors the Lord. 
Lord when we come to evaluating other uh, systems of thought or counseling or, or theories. And, and I want you to see, too, that the Bible is actually commanding us here by way of application, to be discerning about what we believe. That, that as Christians, we need to hold fast to the Word of God and, and the message of Christ. And, and then all these other things going on in the world, these systems, these theories, these philosophies, whether they're in the first century, like Paul's talking about here, or whether they're in our day, that the Bible calls us to be discerning and to exercise wisdom about those things. So with that in mind, that this is a good pursuit as long as we pursue it in humility and a desire to honor Christ, we want to talk about a comparison of counseling models. And by way of review, because I know you and I have slept a few times since September, and when we were talking about this way, way back, back then, remember when we think about counseling or counseling systems or uh, having conversations with people and, and the different ways and means that people do that, that, that those systems really represent a person's worldview. That is, counseling systems are making claims about ultimate issues, like what ought we to do in a situation? How should we understand people? How should we understand the source of their problems? And, and then what's the best way to care for them? How do we fix the problem? Or, or what intervention would we apply to help them? And that represents of what we call a worldview or a way of thinking about life. Because counseling systems make claims about ultimate issues in that regard. And because counseling systems are really worldview systems, we recognize that, that there's, there's really no neutrality when it comes to counseling systems. Um, counseling in any form, whoever's doing the counseling, whether you're reading a blog about counseling, whether you're reading a book, whether you go to somebody in your town or whatever, those counseling systems are not neutral. They are trying to persuade you and influence you to understand people, problems, and what to do about it in a particular way. And, uh, and so when we think about this as Christians, we need to recognize, again, what Colossians uh, tells us here in terms of discernment and whatnot, that, that we are called to be discerning about what we believe about people and their problems and what to do about it or counseling systems. As Christians, the Bible, biblical doctrine, should direct and influence and control what we think about in terms of counseling and those systems. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of give you a, a road map, a, a way to evaluate counseling systems, and then what we're going to do, it's going to be kind of fun, I think, we're just going to go through some various counseling systems, and we're going to analyze them from a biblical standpoint. Because like a lot of things in life, uh, there are true things about counseling systems, and then there might be some misguided things in counseling systems. So uh, what, sort of, what sort of criteria should we use? So let me give you a, a guideline, a, a road map, to be able to figure out and evaluate counseling systems. One of the most important questions we ask about a counseling system is what is the counseling system's source of authority? That is, what are they relying on as the, the, the foundation of their information? Who's the expert? Where's the data coming from? How do we know what to rely on? And, it, and if you've noticed this, counseling systems don't agree on this. You and I have all had friends that in the moment of a very important life decision, they'll say something like this, it just felt like the right thing to do. And we go, okay. And, and that, that's not right or wrong. Or necessarily, I'm just saying people might, might use something as simple as something felt right 
in a decision. You know, we, we drove by that house and my wife and I both had a feeling about it. So we walked in and it was like, this is it. We're home. This is the, right? And people make huge decisions based on how they feel. Well, contrast that with somebody that goes to their medical doctor and they do a series of evaluation questions based on the DSM criteria and based on that analysis, they say, oh, you have a major depressive disorder. So you see, the authority systems are different. One's basing their decision on how they might feel. One's basing it on a secular counseling guidebook, so to speak. And so there's all sorts of different sources of authority. Um, intuition might be one, right? You know, you just know it's true. Uh, it feels right. Um, you know, if, if you get your theology from country music, that's probably where you're going to be, right? You know, just follow your heart, you know, do what feels good. Um, so country music, as much as we love it, may not be the most reliable place to get our uh, information on important issues like this. Reason. Reason might be a source of authority. You know, it just makes sense. It just follows basic logic, uh, humanistic ideology, statistics. We, we can say, okay, we're going to map, you know, a thousand people and we're going to figure out which people are the happiest. And based on that, we're going to extrapolate what they're doing. And from there, we're going to build a counseling system. So using research, statistics, reason, things like that. Another uh, closely related to reason would be empiricism, which is we think of that as the scientific method in our day and age. And this is where we're setting up theories uh, based on known controls. We're doing experimentation. We're evaluating the results of that. We're making conclusions and learning. And uh, so when we use empiricism or or the scientific method, uh, we can use that as a source of authority. Uh, pragmatism, and this is, we don't like to admit this, but are you like me? Sometimes I just, I'm like, just tell me what works, right? I, I just, I, I love science. My wife and I are both science nerds, but if, I, if, I'm, if I'm being honest with you, sometimes I, I, see, I think very unscientifically, and it's like, does it work? Great, we're done, and problem is solved, right? Pragmatism, and again, people make huge life decisions on the basis of just, well, this worked for my buddy, so it must work for me. And, and if you troll Facebook, you understand that in the counseling world, pragmatism is supreme. You know, my mom said this, my wife said this, my girlfriend said this, right? And, and, it, it, and in the collective wisdom, is that wisdom? Um, you know, it, it works, and therefore it should work for you too. Now, what's interesting is that even secular experts are pushing back against things like statistics and, and pragmatism. Uh, let me introduce you to Dr. Alan Francis. He wrote a book called Saving Normal. It came out a few years ago. Uh, he was the chairman of the dsm 4 Task Force. That would be the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the, uh, the psychological manual that is used to um, diagnose mental illnesses in our culture. So he, he's the task force chairman on DSM-4. Of course, we're in DSM-5-TR now, so this is a few years ago. But listen to Dr. Francis. After he left kind of that industry in reflection, he really had a lot of regrets and a lot of um, um, interesting conclusions. So he asked this question. It's a really important question. Can we use statistics in some simple and precise way to define mental normality? That's a really good question, isn't it? He's saying, can, can we go study people and do experimentation and derive from that what is mentally normal? Mental health normality is what he's saying. Can the bell curve, talking about the data, provide a scientific guide in deciding who is mentally normal and who is not? Conceptually, the answer is, why not? But practically, the answer is, and you can read his response there. Okay? That's profound. 
that the chairman of DSM-4 basically says, after decades of being in that industry, statistics are an unreliable foundation for determining, determining human normality. And you know what? He's right. He's right. Um, and he's not the only one. He is not a Christian, as far as I know, and, and he doesn't advocate biblical counseling or even Christian counseling. Uh, but listen to what he says. We must reconcile to there not being any simple standard to decide the question of how many of us are abnormal. And again, that, that is a huge admission from a very honest uh, secular expert on psychology. And we as Christians would say, you know what? I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate his honesty in that. And, and, we, and we know why he's right. Because in order to know what is normal, what, what, what is the perfect image of humanity, we have to learn something about the only perfect person that ever existed, don't we? We need God's revelation to tell us what is normal, what is right, what is the, the picture of humanity there. Okay, so what's their authority? Empiricism, pragmatism, and of course what we're going to argue for as Christians is that only biblical revelation is a, <clears throat> is a reliable enough standard or authority to be able to determine what is true and to build a counseling system from that. We, we know in the Bible that God reveals himself in two basic ways. He reveals himself through creation and conscience, we call that general revelation, and he also reveals himself through the scriptures. We call that special revelation, and we looked at those passages uh, during our last weekend together. But the point is, there is no other source on the earth that is revelatory and is God's very word. And if you think about it, if we're going to build a counseling system, there's a lot of stuff we have to know, right? I mean, there's a lot to know, and wouldn't you think that going to the architect of the human being himself might be a really good way to determine why do people do what they do and what is normality and, and what are we supposed to be moving toward and how ought we to respond in certain situations. So only revelation is really sufficient to build a counseling system upon. Now, now we're not saying that reason and empiricism and pragmatism, th- those may, might all give us um, additional information that might be helpful. But none of those is adequate as a a standard of authority to build a counseling system upon. So that's the first question we really want to ask in in evaluating counseling system is what is their authority? And, uh, and, you know, if you watch, uh, I don't know what you watch or you you Netflix or watch shows or whatever, but there are always cultural experts that are popular in our day that become figureheads of authority as it relates to life and counseling. You know, there was a season that was Oprah, and then later on it was Dr. Phil, and, and who knows who it is, what it is today. But um, again, only the Bible reveals the mind of God, and only God himself, as the author of human beings, the creator of human beings, is sufficient to give us adequate information to do that. The second question we want to ask is not just what's their authority, but how is the person understood? How do we understand people? I think authority is is the most important question we ask. And then when we move downstream from that, the next question is, how is a person understood? Now, Now think about this. If we look at counseling systems, we're going to hear all sorts of information about how to understand people. Some counseling systems, for an example, would say that human beings are highly developed animals. And in fact, I read a study this last week 
where the, the researchers were making conclusions about how and why human beings respond to trauma in certain ways. And so they were doing research. Let's look at human beings and trauma. And then they took that data, but what they interpreted that data through was a lens that says, well, because we know that human beings are a product of evolution and we're just the, the highest, highly developed animal there is today, Based on that theory, they then interpreted the data through an evolutionary framework. So that would be one way that human beings are sometimes understood. Other people uh, would say, no, 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 people are primary social beings, and they think about people as product of social relationships. So they're looking at like family relationships, community relationships, uh, uh, father and, and um like parents and children and upbringing and things like that because in their view, it's really the social development that is the most influential when it comes to people. Other, other systems will say, no, 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 those are important, but really people are primarily a biological system. And, and you've heard this today, right? Where, where people are analyzing you know, depression and anxiety and what they're saying is, well, all of that is a product of dysfunction that goes back to brain physiology. In other words, all of our mental illnesses and all of our life challenges can find their way back to some deficiency in the physiological part of us. Brain chemistry, genes, uh, some other systems in our body. Uh, and then with that, uh, maybe more specifically, we, we sometimes hear counseling systems that really emphasize the victimization of people. And they might say things like, well, you're the victim of your genes or your environment or poor relationships, etc., Okay, so what's the source of authority? How do we understand people? Here's a third question. What is viewed as the main problem? What is viewed as the main problem? What I'm trying to give you is a, a series of questions to evaluate counseling systems, right? So third question, what's the main problem? It may be, as someone comes for counseling, the problem is the person himself or herself, that there's some emotions, there's some bad behavior, and the counseling system is designed to help them with that. Other times, the, the problem might be other people. And we all know counseling systems that are not emphasizing the responsibility of the person. They're emphasizing what was done to the person or not done to the person, their home environment, their family relationships, their socioeconomic status, their financial status. Um, so other people are seen sometimes as the... Um, really the source of the problem. Genetics or biology, environment or experiences. You know, today, trauma is very big. So a lot of the counseling systems today that are popular are systems that, that are basically saying trauma and how you respond to trauma is the source of all the dysfunction that you're experiencing. And so that, that's where we kind of are today. That's the latest fad in psychology. Um, things like um, environment or experiences, upbringing, unmet needs, lack of opportunities, lack of validation, and you can see here that um, systems don't agree, do they? Right? There's a, there's a vast difference between saying, I have a problem that I need to own and take responsibility for, versus saying, I am not responsible, it was my parents. Or it was my upbringing, right? And, 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 and maybe, maybe both of those are partially true. But counseling systems build themselves on one of those views. And so there's not always the same perspective from system to system. Here's another question. How do we solve the problem? You know, some counseling systems, like the one developed by the famous counselor Carl Rogers, uh, who founded what we call client-centered therapy today, uh, he, he stressed that what we need to do in counseling is really just listen. 
We want to listen, reflect, listen, affirm, listen, validate. And in his way of understanding counseling, that's how you help the person, by listening and validating. Well, that's different than, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which is going to say, well, yeah, I want to listen and I may want to affirm some things, but in CBT, what I'm looking for is maladaptive thinking and emotion and behavior, and we're going to restructure that and help them to come up with more adaptive ways of dealing with their problems. See, it's different, right? One, one says, I'm just reflecting and affirming. That's the therapeutic formula. The other one says, no, 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 we've got to help the person change their thinking and their behavior somehow. So different ideas. Other people are going to say uh, that you solve the problem by new thinking or coping skills, changing the environment. Uh, some systems uh, uh, emphasize assertiveness training and things like that, boundaries. Um, you, you know, big today is, well, you know, you have a biological problem, so we're going to give you a medication. The medication is going to fix it. And then there are other systems that, that really even question if it can be solved or should it be solved, uh, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, but there are counseling systems that don't emphasize problems at all. Um, so again, uh, these are guidelines for evaluating some of these systems. What's the goal of the system? Uh, again, uh, you get the idea here to be understood, to feel better, to function better, to have new skills, to be happy. Uh, the goal of the system varies from system to system. And then leading all of this to the place, in light of those questions, we ask another question, what's the role of the counselor? And, uh, you know, today... Counselors function in, in a whole bunch of different ways. As some are medical doctors who prescribe medication. Some come alongside more as friends who listen and empathize. Uh, other counseling systems, like a, an EMDR technician, let's say, uh, they are a, uh, a professional who is specialized in a particular area of a, a therapy or intervention. They're certified to do that, and you go to them for some specialized training. So the role of the counselor varies based on what sort of system they're representing. Okay? So if we think with that, with those questions now, and, and hopefully that gives you an idea of how we're going to evaluate systems, uh, when we look as Christians, we look out there and we look at the lay of the land counseling systems, you're basically going to see three different kinds of systems out there. Okay? There are systems that are secular counseling models. That is, they don't make any sort of claim as it relates to Christianity or the Bible or anything like that. Then there are systems that are mixed. Sometimes we call these integrated systems because what they're doing is they're combining some Christian truth with some secular interventions and bringing them together into a, uh, a combination, an integration there. And then there are biblical systems which strive to be solely and thoroughly Christian um, from you know, start to finish, so to speak. Okay, so with, with that in mind, here's what I want to do. And uh, you'll find at the end of the notes section for this lecture, there's a chart. Okay? Uh, do you see that chart? It's probably just a couple pages past where you're at now. Do you see that there? Tell me there's a chart in there. You got it? Okay. Uh, okay. I'm always worried about that. So, okay. Um, so it, it, just know that that chart is there for your viewing pleasure. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm a former recovering engineer, which means I am recovering from a chart and flow chart and diagram addiction. Um, I, I, seriously, no, I hope that that's helpful to you. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to work. I'll tell you when you need the chart, okay? I'll tell you when you need it. But uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at some historic models. And, and these are models that have largely developed over the years 
So it's more like a history lesson. And then I want to focus on a series of counseling models today that you and I are likely to encounter. And maybe you've experienced some of these. Maybe some of you are, are even trained in this or you, you've practiced this. And uh, so we're just going to look through some of these systems there. And that chart hopefully gives you a flyover of everything we're going to talk about and a few more. Okay? No extra charge for the chart. Now, uh, so let's talk about some historic models, okay? Some historic models. Uh, and before we get there, let's, let's just review kind of what we talked about last weekend, and that is if we answer those questions, right? What's our authority? How do we understand people? What's the problem? What's the goal, etc.? If we ask the Bible those questions, right? We, we just as a Christian, we come to the text and we, we study the Word of God and we say, what are the answers to those questions? And then we kind of put that into a system of counseling. Here's what we get, okay? No surprises here, I don't think. The authority for a Christian counseling system or what we call a biblical counseling system is God as revealed in His Word, right? No, no argument here, right? We believe God has all authority and because the Bible is His Word, His Word is the functional authority over our lives. And so we would say, yeah, there's a lot of things we can know, but only the Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, God-breathed, and therefore that is the reliable source to build a counseling system upon. So then if we ask the Bible as our source of authority, how do we understand people? How do we understand problems? We start to get answers like this. People are created by God in His image to glorify Him. The problem of humanity is sin, which has corrupted and separated us from God and suffering that we experience in this world because of sin, either directly or indirectly. Uh, direct suffering would be if someone directly sins against you or hurts you. Indirect suffering would be something like an accident or a disease or something like that. The world is, is sin-cursed, right? It's a fallen world, and sometimes suffering isn't related to personal sin. It's just related to the fact the world's broken and we experience suffering. The solution, according to the Bible, if we ask the Bible, what's the, what's the solution to that, is reconciliation to God by faith in Christ and then progressive sanctification or growing in our faith by means of the Spirit through the Word. The goal of a counseling system built on the Word of God is to see men and women glorify God by trusting Him and growing in Christ. You say, wait, wait, wait. How does trusting Jesus and growing in Him help me with my marriage? How does it help me with my anxiety? How does it help me with this people issue I've got? How does it help me with my anger? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of the weekend talking about. We're going to connect those dots for you, okay? But the, but the point is to see that the goal that the Bible gives us to glorify God and know Him and walk with Him is the actual means to help people with those other things. And there are a lot of Christians that don't see that. They don't see the connection between everything they sing about on Sunday morning and the problems they're going to experience Monday night. And that's why biblical counseling is so exciting because what we're doing is we're, we're making connections between those two worlds to help Christians see the relevancy of that. And then finally, the counselor, in terms of what's the counselor's job, the counselor's role is what the Bible calls a discipler, a Christian who comes alongside to help another person by caring for the person in the context of a local church. And this is important, right? We recognize that counseling is a form of discipleship designed by God uh, to be carried out by all Christians in the context of a local body. 
it's it's not according to the Bible. It, it's not something that's independent or kind of separated from that. It's designed to happen in the community of the church, where everybody working together under the guise of godly leadership is taking responsibility to care for one another and walk with them through the difficulties of life. Okay, So that's the biblical vision. Hopefully that sounds familiar from the September weekend. Now, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's jump in our time machine here and go back to history. Some historic models. I'm just going to kind of wave my hands at these because uh, you know it, it's an interesting history lesson, but we want to get to the ones that are present today. There he is, your friend and mind, Siggy. Uh, Mr. Sigmund Freud, he really popularized a form of psychology back in his day in the 1800s called depth psychology. And uh, he had several followers. Obviously, we, we still, it's amazing what this man's influence has done even today. When people talk about an ego complex or they talk about, you know, uh, this, this, um, conflict within and, and uh, you know my parents did this and all of that goes back to Mr. Freud's system what's interesting is his system uh, and his system guess what the authority was himself and, and that's not unique there are lots of counseling systems that you know the expert in the field becomes the uh, the authority uh, he saw people as instinctual animals governed by three immaterial forces called the id, the superego, and the ego. You remember this from like, you know, freshman year, college? You remember this from Psych 101? Where, uh, you know, the, the, the superego in Freud's thinking is your moral compass. It, it's that part of you that thinks about morality and religion and right and wrong. And then there's the id, right? That's that part of you, according to Freud, that just wants to follow your heart, follow your feelings, do whatever feels like uh, you want to do. It's, it's that instinctual principle. And then right stuck in the middle as the umpire between your superego and your id is that thing called your ego. And it's trying to go, who do I listen to? Do I listen to my morality or do I listen to this desire to just do what feels right? And, of course, Freud said that uh, neurosis and most problems in life amounted to a conflict between those uh, two realities. So the source, according to him, was to actualize your potential by making that unconscious conflict conscious. In other words, you become aware of that conflict in order to strengthen your ego. And, of course, if you know Freud, he thought the morality, the, the moral compass was the problem. We need to beat that down and let your ego flourish in just doing what you feel like doing, which if you think about that using biblical anthropology is basically saying live in the deeds of your flesh. I mean, that, that's really what he's saying in biblical terms. Anyway, so the counselor then becomes an expert at uncovering issues from the past because according to, to Freud, it was issues from the past that led to this conflict. Uh, so you remember, I put a shovel up there. The shovel reminds you, Freud, depth psychology, we've got to dig into your past to figure out what's wrong with you. And then a guy came after Freud, B.F. Skinner. He was the first major guy to depart from Freudian psychodynamics and uh, he was a scientist, and because of that, he really, really didn't like Freud, because Freud's talking about all these things, your id, your ego, your superego, your unconscious, all these things that you can't prove in a laboratory. You can't put a human being under a microscope and see your id, your ego, and your superego. So Skinner said, I'm a scientist, that means those things don't exist. 
I'm interested in science. I'm interested in what can be studied empirically. And so he built a system based on behaviorism, understanding people as conditioned animals and blank slates in which the environment kind of programs the blank slate. And of course, you'll remember Skinner viewing human beings as just developed animals. He did research on what little creatures? Do you remember? Rats. Not like rats, like rats, yes. Uh, so he did a lot of research on rats and then extrapolated that into human studies. His goal was to restructure the environment to achieve better functioning. And of course, in that view, the, the counselor is a technician who's skilled in being able to do all that. There's our friend Carl Rogers, much later uh, into the 20th century. Carl Rogers, he founded what we call client-centered psychology or humanism. And uh, he saw people as good by nature, full of potential. You remember if, you, if you've read Carl Rogers, he said people are kind of like a flower that's pulled in. And therapy is designed to that, let that flower open up and blossom. And uh, It's a very pretty picture, right? Makes sense. Uh, the problem is that people and the environment hinder that development. And therefore the solution, and this is where we get to the client-centered, is to listen and affirm. Listen and validate. Listen and, and, and give positive feedback so that that person receives that unconditional positive regard and is able to then open up and realize their full potential. The, the goal there, of course, is maturity through self-acceptance and validation. So when we think about the counselor, the counselor is really a skilled listener, a reflector, and an affirmer. So our, our picture there to remember, Mr. Rogers, is the mirror, right? Because that's what you're doing. You're just reflecting back what you're hearing and affirming. Okay, that's client-centered. So those are the three big historic systems, and you can see how all three of those influence a lot of systems today. With that in mind, let's talk about some present-day systems that you're more likely to come across in your counseling ministry. Uh, the first pr uh, present-day system I want to talk about is this one called the biogenic theory. And you guys have heard of this. We'll talk more about this next hour when we talk about psychotropic drugs and, and how do we think about medication in the context of biblical counseling. But the biogenic theory, as the name implies, uh, is the view that people are material beings, there's no immaterial substance, and therefore people's problems in life amount to some sort of deficiency or problem in their biology, in their, in their physiological system. Uh, a lot of psychiatry is based on this today, most psychiatrists, a lot of medical doctors. Uh, people are seen as a product of their brain chemicals, that, that, that's that materialistic view. Uh, often problems are seen as an imbalance in those brain chemicals. And so the treatment is to give medication so a person feels better. And uh, the goal, we want them to feel better, right, and function better. The counselor in that case is not really a, a client-centered person or a Freudian depth psychologist, but somebody who's merely analyzing things using um, DSM criteria and then applying a medical perspective to those symptoms and often prescribing medication or some other form of medical intervention. And uh, by the way, for each one of these systems, I've given you uh, some resources if you want to read more about them. So for example, uh, on this system, uh, biblical counselor David Pallison wrote a wonderful little chapter in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, called Biological Psychiatry. And I've given you those resources because I only have a few minutes to sort of help you to think about the system. And if you want to read more, you can uh, uh, check out those references, okay? So um, one of the challenges with uh, biological psychiatry is um, the, the way that we understand 
um, medicine and how these psychological drugs work. And again, we'll talk about this in, in detail next hour. But listen to Dr. Francis. We, look, we quoted him a moment earlier. Francis says this, The powerful new tools of molecular biology, genetics, and imaging have not yet led to laboratory tests for dementia or depression or schizophrenia or bipolar or obsessive-compulsive disorder or for any other mental disorders. The expectation that there would be a simple gene or neurotransmitter or circuitry explanation for any mental disorder has turned out to be naive and illusory. What's he saying? He's basically saying we now realize in the scientific community that mental disorders and these counseling problems we're talking about are much more complicated in terms of why they happen. And he's saying basically the research has moved on from the previous thought that we can find one gene, one neurotransmitter, one chemical deficiency. Uh, And in fact... um, Ed Welch in Blame It on the Brain writes this about medication. He says psychiatric medication is not actually treating a verifiable chemical imbalance in the brain. Contrary to public perception, psychiatric medications are not chemical bullets that target one particular brain chemical. They are more like chemical blitzkriegs, strafing chemical sites in the brain and hoping for the best. The brain is simply too complex and is sustained by too many chemicals for us to pinpoint chemical imbalances with our current level of knowledge. The most we can reliably say is that psychiatric medication may minimize some symptoms, but is not necessarily treating a chemical deficiency. Uh, And that's true. Uh, That that book's a little bit dated, but that continues to be true today. Um, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what the, the latest research, and this is what the research has said for the last 20 years, if you take 100 people that have a major depressive disorder and you give those 100 people um, a, a leading antidepressant, about 50 to 75% of them will experience some improvement. And that's pretty much what the literature have said uh, for the last couple of decades. So we can give people medication, and many of them improve, but the mechanism of the medication is unknown, and a lot of people don't improve, uh, which tells us there's probably something more than just chemical things going on. Okay, so the strength, when we think about the strengths of the system, we say, you know what, physical body factors do affect emotions and behavior. That's true. When you haven't had your coffee, when you haven't had enough sleep, when you're sick, when you've had a busy week, right, your body uh, is affected by that, and, and those body changes and body realities affect how you and I respond to life. That's true. And that's what, that's what the biogenic theory is saying, is there's some legitimacy to that. And the fact that psychotropic meds do help a lot of people seems to support the theory. The, the problem is chemical imbalance as a theory is older, unproven, and has, had, and has been abandoned by uh, researchers today. And uh, I'll, when we talk about depression later on tonight, I'll, I'll demonstrate that to you. But like Dr. Francis is saying, we now recognize that these psychological disorders are actually a lot more complicated than we realized. And uh, not only have we abandoned the thought that it's purely biological, but we're not even sure that uh, we understand the nature of chemical imbalance and those sorts of things. So, okay. Scripture teaches us furthermore that behavior is not, is driven by the inner man, not the body. We talked about that in the September weekend, right? Chemical imbalance assumes a wrong anthropology. That is, chemical imbalance assumes a view of persons that's only physiological, only material. Whereas the Bible says, well, people are body, but they're also spirit. 
There's an immaterial. There's a spiritual part of them as well. And that inner man, that spiritual part of people is actually what motivates and drives behavior and emotion. So biogenic theory is is not only um, suspicious in terms of the science hasn't proved it, its anthropological system is actually inconsistent with the Bible. The way it views people is out of alignment with what the Bible says God created human beings, okay? So there's no acknowledgement of that spiritual nature of people. There's no spiritual dimensions to problems. And if that's true, there's no Jesus, no gospel, no salvation, no sanctification. And uh, as Christians, we would say, well, even though there's some truths to that, that ultimately falls short. So if we want to diagram this, this is how the world views in the biogenic theory people, right? They would say people are just natural, they're just material. All there is is a brain or a body, so the problem must be in the brain. We're going to get a medication, and they're going to improve uh, in function there. Okay, This is a worldly view, a secular view, a materialistic view of persons. Whereas in reality, this is what the Bible teaches. See, this is just body, just material. The Bible says, sure, there's a body, but underneath that is an inner man. There's a spiritual part of people, and it's this spiritual part of people that's actually driving the behavior and the dysfunction and the emotions that we're seeing that we're trying to address in counseling. So the biogenic theory has a, a uh, misguided view of persons that uh, makes the theory ultimately one we must reject. Okay, so there's a summary there uh, of what we've just said in terms of a biblical evaluation. Let's look at another uh, system here, just because we have a, a few to work through. This is CBT, or the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy System. This is one of the most common. It's the one of the most long-standing, and it is one of the most empirically researched systems. So if, if we're just looking purely at statistics, CBT is one of the most effective counseling models available today and has been for many years. The authority of CBT goes back to three individuals, Albert Ellis, uh, Beck, and a guy named Meckenbaum. <clears throat> they all develop different parts of the system, and, and today the system has kind of all come together as we think about cognition and emotion and behavior and how those three interact. People are the product of their cognition and thinking. The problem is that they have maladaptive patterns of thinking, meaning they're not thinking correctly, and therefore the treatment is to change those patterns to what they're going to call our more adaptive patterns, more functional or healthy patterns. Uh, the goal is to get them to feel and function better, and the counselor functions as something of a scientist practitioner. So CBT kind of thinks like this. Our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior all affect one another. And so what we're trying to do is intervene, especially at the thought level, so that we can affect the behavior and the emotional level as well. There's a lot of strengths to this. Uh, first of all, CBT correctly recognizes that there is a connection between cognition, emotions, and behavior. In fact, without knowing it, you know what they're doing? They're borrowing the Christian worldview. They're borrowing what the Bible tells us about the nature of cognition, emotion, and behavior. Now, a lot of CBT uh, counselors may not recognize that, but that's, they're nonetheless borrowing from the biblical worldview there. It's also supported by empirical research, as I mentioned. I put successful in stars there because successful, successful in their mind is the person feels better and functions better, which we should all want, right? We, we want people to feel better and function better. But remember, as a Christian, our goal is not just feeling and function. Our goal is to help the person to actually become more like Christ as they would walk with Him and grow in their faith. 
CBT does promote the client's personal responsibility. We would say that's a strength. And it is problem-focused and aims to solve the problem, all of which Christians would heartily agree with. The weaknesses, as great as those things are, the biggest thing with CBT is it it lacks a biblical referent. While it says cognition leads to emotion and behavior and we need to change your thinking so that your behavior and emotion improves, that's true. The problem is, where do we go to do that? We say, well, this is how you're thinking and we think that's leading to problems over here. How should you think? What do you change your thinking to reflect? And the way it works in CBT is it's the counselor himself or herself that is representing the source of how the person should be thinking. And that might be biblical, it may not. So the biggest problem with CBT is it lacks a biblical referent as a source and standard of godly thinking and attitudes. In other words, we need the Bible to tell us how ought we to think? How should we uh, believe and, and relate in this particular situation? And sometimes pragmatism or modern concepts of mental health replace biblical standards. It lacks any reference to sin, the gospel, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we wouldn't say that, that all problems in life are just about thinking. Remember, that thinking happens in the realm of worship and in relationship to God and a broken relationship that needs to be restored to Christ. So we need to add that whole dimension to CBT for it to reflect more of a biblical perspective. It does affect the noetic, it does ignore the noetic effect of sin, and that is that sin and our fallenness affects our ability to think clearly and logically, uh, uh, an issue that needs to be addressed in regeneration. And then CBT, of course, doesn't recognize the need for the change agent, right? The Holy Spirit himself as one to really work in us from the inside out. We mentioned the worship dimension of life. So again, CBT is, is not bad in terms of there's a lot of strengths as it would borrow from the Christian worldview, but it ultimately falls short because of those deficiencies, especially as it relates to the need for the gospel. Another system you're going to see out there is integration. We talked about this. This is where uh, Christians take some secular uh, thinking and try to couple it with the Bible and um, in that case, people are defined on the basis of Christian ideas mixed with psychology. The problem is Christian's ideas mixed with psychology. The solution is Christian ideas. You see the idea, right? Everything is a mix. It's all a, a conglomerate there of taking some from the Bible and some from psychology. And it could be any branch of psychology there. Um, so one example of the psychological gospel Uh, One example of integration is what we call the psychological gospel. I don't know how many of you have heard this, but what the psychological gospel is, it takes some things from Christianity and the Bible, and it, it brings it together. It integrates it with Abraham Maslow's need psychology and the hierarchy of needs that some of you have uh, read about and heard about. So in that scenario, people are created by God, but they're primarily passive and victim, right? They're needy. They need their needs met in order to flourish. Uh, And because of that, when the needs aren't met, they become wounded, they're low in self-esteem, and then enter Jesus, right? And in their view, Jesus is the Son of God and He dies on the cross, but all of those mechanics of salvation are designed to meet these unmet psychological needs. So for example, Jesus comes and He unconditionally loves, He unconditionally accepts, He fills that cup of needs, right? And the goal is to feel loved and accepted by God through Christ, and, uh, and that sort of 
you know, uh, uh, solves the problem. So we can graphically illustrate it like this. We think of people as, you know, passive, empty, wounded, needy. You know, they're, they're the, the plant with nothing growing on it. Here comes Jesus, right? He's the cosmic psychotherapist. He meets the needs. He offers unconditional acceptance. He might reparent so that they can come to know God as Father. And so, for example, when Jesus, when Isaiah writes of the coming Messiah, by his wounds we are healed, the Christian psychologist hears that and says, yes, but they define healed in terms of those unmet psychological needs. Whereas, of course, Isaiah isn't talking about unmet psychological needs defined by Abraham Maslow. By, by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah means reconciled to God through the personal work of Christ who dies on the cross, makes atonement for sin, and offers forgiveness and restoration. So how they're defining heal is very different. The Bible defines it as reconciliation with God. A Christian psychologist would define it based on needs psychology. So that's a difference there. And then, of course, you know, Jesus fills my cup. I'm passive. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I feel loved. I feel good about myself. And that's kind of how it works there. Okay? So that is the psychological gospel. Uh, listen, this is uh, from John Piper's God is the Gospel. Um, and you can... You can Google this and find this. Listen to John Piper's analysis of the psychological gospel. It's it's very helpful. Um, Piper writes this, Today, as in every generation, it is stunning to watch the shift away from God as the all-satisfying gift of God's love. The best and final gift of the gospel is that we gain Christ. And Piper quotes from Philippians, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then Piper says this, This all-encompassing gift of God's love through the gospel to see and savor the glory of Christ forever. In place of this, we have turned the love of God and the gospel of Christ into a divine endorsement of our delight in many lesser things, listen to this, especially the delight in our being made much of. The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness of the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of His Son, He enables you to enjoy making much of Him forever? Did you get that? It's subtle, but there is a world of difference. Listen to, listen to Piper again. He says, Our fatal error is believing that wanting to be happy means wanting to be made much of. It feels so good to be affirmed. But the good feeling is finally rooted in the worth of self, not the worth of God. This path to happiness is an illusion. And there are clues, Piper says. There are clues in every human heart, even before conversion. One of those clues is that no one goes to the Grand Canyon or the Alps to increase his self-esteem. You don't do that, do you? It's not what happens in front of massive deeps and majestic heights. Piper concludes with this. This distortion of divine love into an endorsement of self-admiration is subtle. It creeps into our most religious acts. We claim to be praising God because of His love for us. But if His love for us is really at bottom, His making much of us, who is really being praised? We are willing to be God-centered, it seems, as long as God is man-centered. 
we are willing to boast in the cross as long as the cross is a witness to our worth. Who then is really our pride and joy? Does that make sense? That's John Piper, God is the Gospel, chapter 1. Get it, read it, so helpful. But what he's saying is, though the language is similar, there is a world of difference between the biblical gospel that's designed to make much of God and the psychological gospel, which is about God making much of us. And we need to be careful about that. Now, is it true that God does offer love and acceptance in Christ unconditionally? It's true, isn't it? That the gospel is central to hope and healing? Yes, that's true. But it recasts, it recasts sin in terms of need psychology. It redefines Jesus as a cosmic psychotherapist. It redefines the gospel in terms of psychological acceptance versus dealing with sin as pe- so people can be restored to God. And it makes people the center rather than Christ the center. And so while there's a lot of biblical terminology and Christ is talked about and verses are used, the whole system is colored by a commitment to need psychology which fundamentally changes the gospel message itself. So we have to be careful about that. Uh, 12-step, we're all familiar with 12-step programs started by Bill Wilson and Bob Smith and AA and and all of that. Uh, There's some strengths to to 12-step and some of the Christian views out there. It does encourage the sharing of struggles. It does emphasize personal responsibility in some way. Um, uh, There there is an acknowledgement that we need some sort of God and of course the Christian uh, versions are usually talking about the God of the Bible. So we say that's good, right? There, there is encouragement gained in knowing other people's struggle. There's some accountability and there's connections with caring people. Uh, the problem with a lot of 12-step programs is it promotes a disease model of addiction. And uh, most of the 12 steps I know, it's like they, they haven't fully gotten away from some of those underpinnings of 12-step that conflict with biblical truth. And you can see some of them there, a self-defined God, no gospel in Jesus. And even, even Christian versions, um, without realizing it, are still adopting psychological concepts and principles uh, such that we're not seeing a, a, a real biblical discipleship model there. Uh, and, and the end result is we can end up promoting moralism rather than Christ-likeness. And then there's the popular eclectic method, right? That's pragmatism. Whatever works, we're going to do. Whatever is promoted by Oprah, Dr. Phil, blogs. What, what are people? It varies. What's the problem? It varies. What's the treatment? Whatever works. What's the goal? Whatever we need to feel better. And the counselor, it just varies on the system, which reminds me, of course, of Golden Corral. <laughs> right? It's the buffet approach. You just pick and choose what you want. You figure out what you want to do and... That looks good, doesn't it? Um, anyway, okay, so pragmatism. We talked about pragmatism is not a adequate source to do that. So with all that to say, you might be asking, well, what is then the relationship between biblical counseling and psychology? Because if I'm listening to you, Keith, you're, you're making it sound like uh, psychology is the enemy. Psychology is not something we, we want and, and that it's wrong and so that's a good question. What, what is the relationship between biblical counseling and psychology? So let's, I just want to try to answer that briefly. And then as we move through the weekend, uh, you'll see how we bring some of this together, okay? Uh, Jay Adams, that's Jay there. Uh, he's with the Lord now. Uh, but he was the founder of biblical counseling last century, kind of rediscovered it uh, in the 20th century. Someone asked him, do you think we can learn something from psychologists? And he said, yes. We can learn a lot. I certainly have. And then he goes on in typical J. Adam fashion to say, that surprises you, didn't it? And a lot of people I meet that hear about biblical counseling are like, oh, you guys hate psychology. I'm like, who's saying that? J. Adams didn't say that. Biblical counselors don't say that. 
Um, so he's just saying that, that psychology is, is something we can learn from. And uh, it is good insofar as we can learn in that way. Uh, David Pallison, one of uh, Adam's students, uh, came around and he said essentially the same thing. And he helped us to think about how psychology can be helpful to Christians. And uh, this is cataloged in that book listed in your notes there. Uh, believers should appreciate the common grace of God and how he uses many people to help others. At the same time, we need to be discerning, right? We talked about that. We, we have to recognize that counseling systems are worldview systems. They're making claims about ultimate issues. And therefore, we have to say, does, does this line up with Scripture or not? Does this fit with the Bible or not? So here's the relationship. This is at, these are uh, David Pallison's uh, points here, okay? Here's the general answer. Some psychology can be helpful. It can. But it's not ultimately needed, nor is it necessarily, nor is it uh, adequate to help people the primary focus should be learning. Uh, I just messed that up. Let me try that again. Some psychology can be helpful, but it is ultimately not necessary to adequately counsel people, nor should it be the primary focus. You say, why is that? Because of what we talked about last weekend. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is uh, adequate to help people grow and change into the image of Christ. We have everything we need in the revelation God gives us. You say, okay, so we don't need it, but when is it helpful? How is it helpful? What's Jay Adams talking about? Well, it's helpful in that it helps us uncover true medical problems sometimes. So psychology and related disciplines helped us to understand things like autism and Alzheimer's disease, um, issues of life that have a counseling component but end up being actual medical issues. And so psychology has contributed to... Uh, recognizing medical conditions. It's also helpful as it relates to compiling data on the effects of certain behaviors like sleep loss, um, things like that. It's helpful to fill in biblical generalities. Uh, Paul in Galatians 5 gives us a big long list of problems and then he says, and things like these, fill in the blank. And so psychology helps us to understand, oh, here's something someone's struggling with over here that I didn't realize. And then the church can respond by caring for people that are struggling with that. Psychology can also expose issues that have been neglected by the church or biblical counselors or Christians and provide an opportunity to develop a biblical perspective. And then, like the other sciences, the problem with, with psychology is the worldview it often presents and the conclusions that it brings. So we've got to be discerning, right? It's not neutral. Uh, but psychology is not needed for life and godliness. Christ is sufficient. His word are sufficient to help people and to bring them into maturity. And so Adams concludes with this statement here in a, a journal article. Psychology should be a legitimate and very useful neighbor to the pastor and to the church, we might say. Psychologists may make many helpful studies of man, like on the effects of sleep loss. Psychology may be descriptive. It helps us know what's going on. But it transgresses its boundaries whenever it becomes prescriptive. It can tell us many things about what people do, what man does, but not about what he should do. Does that make sense? So psychology can say, hey, look at this. Hey, pay attention to this. Hey, did you understand this? But it can't say what we do about it. It, it, it can't tell us why people do that. We need God's revelation to know why that happens and ultimately the solutions that God has for that person.